The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning. If you would turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 29, uh, we'll begin in uh, verse 38. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth sia of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Gwen. Good morning. Hope you're well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park. Um, looking forward to getting into this passage with you. Uh, it's uh, looking specifically this morning at the sacrificial system. Uh, so if you're kind of a squeamish person, I apologize in advance. Uh, lots of uh, blood in this passage, which kind of weirds some people out. Um, and you're like, this is why I'm a vegetarian and, uh, or a vegan. Um, or those of you that like only eat meat, isn't there a diet like I only eat meat or something like that? I like that one. That one feels better to me uh, than the other. Um, but depending on kind of where you're at, uh, we're looking uh, this morning at the sacrificial system and what it has to do and what it says about our relationship with God, what it means to relate to God. And we need his um, help. He's actually here. We try to create kind of like pause in the service. Always just remember God has spoken to us. This is his word. Um, it's alive, and uh, His Holy Spirit's here to take this written word and actually speak into the depths of our hearts and bring transformation and freedom and liberation and healing and hope and forgiveness uh, into our lives. And so let's pray that He would actually work among us, that He would, like we've been talking about over the past couple of weeks, walk among us and minister to our hearts. So let's ask Him to do that. Jesus, thank you um, for your spectacular faithfulness. I feel aware this morning that uh, many of us are walking in this, uh, this morning with just burdens we carry that people don't know about. Uh, brokenness in our stories just leads to pain. Fears about the future and insecurities about our present and Areas of anxiety or depression, areas of joy and gratitude, sometimes areas of pride. 
or complacency and in, into all of those places. I'm not, I'm not praying that you would help us to put them aside, but that you would speak into all of those places today. That your presence, your love, your care, your faithfulness would kind of work its way into the depth of our being, that this wouldn't be a time of us just engaging in exercises, kind of mental communication exercises, but that you would speak in power with healing, with freedom, that those who have been stuck and caught in areas of shame would be really set free today. Those who have been carrying weight and burdens would be ransomed and liberated. And so we're praying that you would work in power this morning, Jesus. Walk among us, tend to us, Set us free to be your beloved people. In Christ's name, amen. Um, I, if, if you're kind of not familiar uh, with much of the Bible and you find your way into Exodus 29 or various places in Leviticus, you're going to find a lot of passages that are very gory, uh, very bloody, very detailed about animals and slaughtering of animals and guts and what to do with blood. And it's like, it's unnerving a little bit. And part of that's because uh, as a society, it's something that uh, we don't kind of like face every day, but it's not foreign to our existence. Like if you had bacon this week or a hamburger, like slaughtering of animals happened. It would just happen like far away from you in some sort of mass production factory, which has its own issues, you know, that bother people, uh, probably reasonably, but still thankful for the hamburgers and the bacon. Um, but I remember the first time I was kind of exposed to uh, the slaughtering and the butchering of an animal. I was in college and I was leading this kind of, it's basically our school's version of fraternities. They were called societies. It's leading the society and this is my, like, it was or kind of at the beginning of the year, we would always do, the society I was in would always do a luau, and we'd kind of do a, a big pig roast, and it was my responsibility to make sure the pig roast happened. And so I got the kind of like the information about the pig roast from the previous kind of leader of this group, and um, I'm like, okay, we're going to do it. Just call this guy, and they'll make it happen. And so I called the guy about the luau we were having, and I'm like, we need a pig for this luau. And he's like, we can totally get that for you. I'm actually going to be out of town that week, uh, but my 16-year-old son has done it with me dozens and dozens of times, uh, but he will need help. So if you're willing to help him, uh, then we've, we've got that for you. And I was like, game on. Like this sounds kind of awesome. And so I remember just like come wearing some clothes that I can get messy or something. And I show up at this house and a 16-year-old kid sitting there. And I'm just like debating right now how much to tell you. Because um, <laughs> it was nuts. Uh, it was Nuts. It was messy and bloody and loud and disturbing. And uh, it was just, it was nuts. And, uh, and so anyway, we do the whole thing. You know, you, you do the deed. And, um, and uh, we butchered this pig and we had, we had to, it was the day before the luau. And I was going to, we were going to begin the roast early, early in the morning, the next morning. But I needed to keep it cold overnight and hadn't totally thought through this. Um, it's like August and so I'm like, how are we going to do this? So we bought this, like, one of those huge kind of, like, tubs, like, Rubbermaid tubs, and, like, filled it with ice. But the pig was just, like, bigger. It was this, like, 300, 400-pound pig. It was, like, bigger, and so it didn't fit in it all the way. And I'm like, I'm going to be the guy that ruined this luau that's been happening for the past, like, 20 years or whatever. And so I'm like, that's not going to happen. So we had to, like, figure out a way to keep it cold overnight. And so we, like, kept it cold. And then after the cafeteria shut down that night, me and a friend 
made our way back into the cafeteria <laughs> and, uh, and drug this thing and found our way into the school's kind of like commercial, you know, FDA approved, um, <laughs> FDA approved uh, freezer or refrigeration thing and drug that thing into that big kind of walk-in refrigerator. And we're like, we're at 4 a.m. We're going to wake back up and we're going to drag it back out. And nobody will be that wiser and we'll be fine. So I remember like so vividly, we wake up at like 4 a.m. It's been cold overnight and we walk in and we're like, get back in there. And we're like tugging this thing out of this freezer. And like the morning chef guy like flips on the lights and he's like, oh, what are you guys doing? And we're like, oh, just getting our pig. You know, and we're just like, <laughs> just, just like true story. We throw it in the back of his truck and just left. And uh and the luau happened. We did it. I, I did it. Didn't, didn't do. And, uh, and I had a lot of meetings about that. Uh, ended up having meetings that was not, turns out, having open porous animals in an FDA-approved refrigeration system is not cool. And, uh, but the luau happened, which is the main thing. Um, but I remember, like, this was like, bloody and gory and nasty and bizarre and loud and messy. And it's something that humanity throughout history has actually been very involved in. Every society has like, this is happening. It's happening around them. For us, we've kind of pushed it to the margins because of how messy and disturbing it is. And yet, this, this idea of the slaughtering of animals stands as this really prominent place in the story of God's history with his people as something that teaches us something about what it means to relate to him, which is bizarre. And so it might feel foreign to you, but the question we're trying to ask this morning is, why does it matter? Why do animal sacrifices and the blood of animals matter in our relationship with God? Really, there's a whole book of the Bible about this. This is Levit Leviticus. is going to unpack all these different details of these different sacrifices and what's supposed to be offered, different sacrifices that are offered every day, different sacrifices that are offered on particular days of the year and certain festivals for certain things, um, certain kind of like celebrations throughout the year that different animals are offered in different ways. Really intricate stuff. We're not going to get into all the nuances of all the different sacrifices, but in Exodus 29, it's kind of laying a foundation for everything that's going to be unpacked in Leviticus. Somebody asked me earlier this year, like, can we do Leviticus after Exodus? And I was like, no, you know, uh, no, no, we're not going to do it. Exodus 29 is the best you're going to get uh, for now, you know, someday when, I'm, when I care less, um, maybe. Uh, but no, we're not doing Leviticus. But Exodus 29 is the foundation, and it lays the foundation of the sacrificial system, focusing specifically on really this kind of consecration ceremony of the priesthood. And so we looked at the priests last week. The priests were those who were given access to God's presence. They were welcomed into God's presence, and they also had this mission or this purpose to represent God's presence to the rest of the community at large. And so they were given access. They could come into God's presence, and then they were called to represent His holiness and His glory and His presence um, in the way they lived in the community. And we talked about as Christians, we are all, we are a kingdom of priests. It says that in Exodus 29. It says that later, First Peter 2 is going to talk about this. We are a royal priesthood. We are people through Jesus given access to the presence of God to walk with him, enjoy him, enjoy his love, abide in his love, to see his beauty, to be freed from these things that continue to kind of give turmoil and pain into our heart and to, then to walk out of that place with God, with us, and say, what does it mean to represent his glory, his character, his love in the world? And the sacrificial system is the way in which God has given 
broken, rebellious, messy people access to his presence. And the fact that it's bloody and gory and messy and nasty highlights the reality of our brokenness, the depth of our sin, and the beauty of his redeeming love. And so what we're going to look at this morning is this reality, that it is through the death of a substitute that we are given full access to the presence of God. It's through the death of a substitute that we're given access to the love of God. It's through the death of a substitute that we're given forgiveness from God. It's through the death of a substitute that we're given cleansing from God. It is through this sacrificial atonement that God has demonstrated to us his incredible, faithful love. A love that sets you free. A love that makes you fully human. A love that gives you the ability to live in this life in this liberated joyful, peaceful way. It's a love that the world is longing for, and it comes through the blood of a lamb. So what I want to do this morning, um, just briefly unpack a little bit of what's happening in Exodus 29, which is, again, elaborated in the book of Leviticus. We won't get into any of that. And then we're going to talk about how it points us to Jesus and then why that matters for us today, right now, in the day-to-day fabric of our life. And so, in Exodus 29, a couple of different things are happening. Really, the first 37 verses of it are looking at a ceremony where the priests are kind of being consecrated. And the work that they're going to do is, is going to be consecrated. So there's instructions for how they're to experience cleansing and atonement for the work that they have to work in the presence of God and to represent his presence. The last several verses that Gwen read a few moments ago, verses 38 to the end of the chapter, look at the beginning of the foundation of the daily rituals that were offered every day in the temple, the work that the priests would do every single day. And so there's this consecration ceremony and this priesthood. So in the consecration ceremony, there's a number of different offerings that are, that are kind of like um, commanded and instructed. Um, the kind of the three animal sacrifices, there's the sacrifice of a bull, sacrifice of two different rams, and all of them mean and communicate different things, again, all of which will be elaborated later in Scripture. The first bull was this um, sin offering, and the bull would be slaughtered, a lot of blood, the blood would be spilled, and they would take the blood, and they'd sprinkle the blood on the altar to consecrate the altar. There's a lot of ceremonies and rituals that they were doing to kind of like set this altar apart to cleanse space for the presence of God. So the whole kind of idea is God is holy, God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and as humanity, when we've turned from his reign, it's like we've vandalized his world and vandalized our own hearts. Uh, There's a theologian named Cornelius Plantenga, which sounds like the name of a theologian, um, who talked about sin or human rebellion as the vandalization of shalom. It's taking God's beautiful creation, the world and humanity, and when we turn from him, it's like we're tarnishing and polluting all of it. And it's not just outside of us, it's also inside of us. There's a real brokenness, and God is holy and does not tolerate his presence in the midst of brokenness, and yet he loves us. And so the sacrificial system is a way of taking people who have been unholy and bringing forgiveness and cleansing so that God could dwell among us, which is the whole point of the passage. Right at the very end of chapter 29, The whole point is, I want to be their God. I want them to be my people. I want to dwell among them. I want to walk among them. I want them to dwell in my home. And so the blood of the lamb is about cleansing space to kind of make a sacred space for the presence of God among humanity. 
It's making a space sacred. So the blood of the bull is about making this courtyard with these altars. It's about making sacred space for the presence of God. And then there are two other rams that were offered. The first ram is another burnt offering. They would burn everything on this ram and the altar in the courtyard. We talked about the courtyard a couple weeks ago. They would burn this ram and the smoke would ascend. And the whole idea is as human beings to come up before God in our brokenness and in our rebellion um, is not something that we can do cavalierly or lightly. In fact, when you think about kind of the opening pages of the Bible, it says, God says to humanity, when we reject his reign over us, when we turn from him, when we push away from his word, it says, the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, that the day that you say no thanks to God's reign, I'm going to make my own way in this world, you will surely die. The way Paul says it in Romans 6 is the wages of sin is death. To turn from God and push away from his reign is like tyranny against the creator king of the universe. And that sin is real and it's weighty and it's costly and the penalty of it, the word of God says, is death. And that's not something we talk about a lot in our culture because we live in a culture that's kind of like finding ways to like make ourselves feel kind of worthy of love and the way that we've constructed as a society to feel worthy of love is to kind of esteem ourselves highly. And so if you feel somebody like, talking about, man, I really messed up. It's like, no, but you're great. You're great. And you're great. No, you're greater. We're all great. We're all just great. So we don't really need a savior. We're kind of like good enough. And yet we don't feel it. We don't feel that. We feel the reality of pain in our life. We feel the reality of the darkness in our heart. We feel the motives and we feel the insincerity and we feel the selfishness and we feel the frustration and the anxiety that's just kind of like there. And the way forward isn't like, no, but you're awesome. The way forward is actually, to be honest, I've turned from the reign of my God. And I need a savior. I'm actually worthy of punishment. I actually deserve that. And the beauty of God's holiness is that he is totally just and he doesn't brush past our sin. It's like, I thought about this image Uh, Kind of always, we bought like a fixer-upper here five years ago and always doing different work like in different rooms of the house. Like every year it's like, all right, we're going to try and take on this room and make it better. And so just kind of finished a room and it's like, man, this is like a great room. And I'm just like imagining if we had just created this space where it's like, man, this is like a, this room is like going to be a breath for our family. It's just this space for us to be. And if somebody came in and just like, just tore down the drywall and started putting holes in everything and throwing, you know, um, like just junk all around, just like vandalizing the room. It's like, man, this is like, there's a, like, I don't want them in my house, (laughs) you know, like, uh, no thanks. Like, we've created this space to be a flourishing space. When people pollute it and vandalize it, there's a separation. And the separation from God is a separation from the source of life, the life-giving God. And it's real. And so God has said, I'm holy and just. And I'm not just kind of saying, no big deal. People can pollute my world and vandalize their own hearts and the lives of others. He says, it is a big deal. It's worthy of death. And yet I'm going I'm to create a way, a way through a substitute sacrifice. Talk about substitutionary atonement. I'm going to create a way to deal with that rebellion through the sacrifice of a substitute. And so this ram that would be burned, that would go up before God as this innocent, spotless, without blemish animal that had done nothing wrong, was being offered as a substitute. It's being offered as a substitute, as a sin offering, a burnt offering to come before the presence of God on behalf of the people. 
And somehow in some sort of like shadowy kind of picture way, just to be an image of what was to come, this is showing people, showing humanity that the way before God is not by achieving, it's not by denying, it's not by minimizing the brokenness, it's by looking to the substitute, looking to the offering of a substitutionary sacrifice, someone who would lay down their life in our place. The third ram offered in this ceremony, um, or the third animal, the second ram offered in this ceremony was um, another offering that would be, again, the priests would eat some of this. And, and part of the idea is they're offering parts of it and they're actually being sprinkled with the blood. So the blood would be put on their earlobe and on their nose and on their thumb and on their right thumb and their right toe. They're like dipping these parts in blood. I don't know if you've ever watched a movie or a show that had like pagan religions. You're like, they're like where they're showing priests, like old priests with blood on them. And you're like, that's so pagan. It's like a totally a part of Israel's history. It's bloody. And after that, kind of like, even after they were like, had this blood on their, kind of on these different parts of their body representing their kind of wholeness being covered by the blood, then they would take more blood from the altar and mix it with oil and just sprinkle it. They'd get sprinkled and get sprinkled on the priest's clothes and sprinkled on the priest's body and sprinkled on the altar. And you're like, there's blood everywhere. If there's blood everywhere, and the kind of whole image is like to come before the presence of God requires a life. That the wages of sin is death. And this gift of God, this gift of restoration, this gift of reconciliation, God in his love who wants us to come near, is offering a way where he's saying, people that have turned from me can come near to me through the substitutionary sacrifice of a spotless lamb. And all of this is not creating some like weird pagan system. It's this old system that's a shadow of what Christ would be, what Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal God, what he would be for us, that he would be, in the words of John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this theme runs all throughout the New Testament. Where the cross of Christ itself, when Jesus hangs from the cross, which is right near, right on this day of atonement, he's saying, this is the Lamb of God. This is your God who is not only representative of God's presence, the tabernacle, not merely representative of God's priestly care for us and the way he represents God to us, but he is the sacrifice. He is the one who sacrificed his life. He took the penalty that we deserved so that we could have access to God. And that's what it's all about. It is all about God giving us restored access to walk with him, dwell with him, enjoy his love, enjoy his presence, and enjoy all the gifts of his presence with rest and peace and faithfulness and goodness and all these kind of evidences or this fruit of the presence of his spirit in our life. All the things humanity is longing for and striving to achieve. God's offering it freely. The entire book of Hebrews, the entire book of Hebrews is unpacking this reality that all of this old system, the tabernacle, the holy of holies, the high priestly system and the sacrificial system, all of it is just pointing us to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but they were a shadow, like a little kind of vague picture of what God was going to do through Jesus. And so when we kind of like come to a passage like this, what we're looking at is what we're looking to see what does it mean to actually come to Jesus as the one who gives us access to the presence of God through his sacrificial death on our behalf. So I want to I talk about a few aspects of that and why that matters for us in really, really, I think, significant ways right now, today. Um, 
in the Old Testament system, there are really three different kind of categories of the sacrifices. One of them are these sacrifices for atonement. And atonement just means to cover. So we were, we were praying this morning um, before the service, and as we were praying, somebody had an image, and they're just thinking about the snow coming and just saying, and as the snow like gently falls, all of the sort of like brokenness of life is like made white and made clean through the falling of the snow. And that's really what atonement is. It's this covering. There's this brokenness and this pain that is cleansed and covered and forgiven. I, I have not done my fall kind of raking, which is going to be a lot harder now um, as all those leaves get kind of like matted down. Um, I haven't done it and my lawn is kind of a mess. Uh, but, you know, in the next hour or so, it won't be. It'll look great, just like everybody else's. And uh, it'll be clean, made white, through this gentle, like, covering. And the blood of Christ is bringing a covering. It's covering for you, not just like uh, keeping something there. It's actually cleansing. Another way to think about covering it is this idea of, like, I, I remember I was, I was a teenager, went to a, a friend's lake house, and uh, he wasn't there. He was giving us his lake house to, like, use for a weekend. And I took, um, he had this, like, set of golf clubs. And on, on the dock of the lake house, there's a place you could, like, just drive these balls out into the, you know, into the lake. So I'm like, oh, that's fun, you know, like, and I grabbed this big Bertha. I'm like, yes, you know. Remember big Berthas? I don't know if they're good or not. But it felt like this is a great club. I don't know. And I'm just, like, standing there, you know, with my awesome form. I don't know what I'm doing. And I just remember, like, boom, whew, golf club just launched. <laughs> just <laughs> launched. I mean, way, way out there. And I was like, oh my gosh. Um, and I remember calling him like, hey, I'll, I'll pay. I'll, you know, I lost your club. And he's like, man, it's, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I'll cover that. Like, no, no big deal. And that, that wasn't free to him. He suffered loss to make me not pay. If he wanted another driver there at the lake house, he'd have to buy or find and get another driver or he would suffer that loss. It was going to cost him to forgive me was going to cost him. He covered my error with his grace and with his forgiveness. And that's what atonement is. That there's a cost to our sin and, and Jesus through his blood is paying the penalty for our sin to give a covering, to give atonement, to give cleansing. And it brings both forgiveness of our guilt and cleansing of our shame. We're going to come back to that in a moment because that's where I want to focus in. Second category of some of these offerings were these offerings for thanksgiving, which are ways that people would take the fruit of their harvest, their produce, and they would take portions of it, and they would come into the temple to offer them as a burnt offering to the Lord. And what that was doing is saying, we recognize that everything we have is a gift from you. Everything that's, that's kind of ours is coming from you as a gift, and to offer a portion of it back to you saying, one, thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for the ways that you provide again and again and again. Two, it's saying, and I trust you. I trust you as the provider. I, I trust you by offering a part of this back. I'm not storing up and hoarding more and more and more for myself because I think I, I can't kind of be a generous person. I can't be a free person because I have to like hoard everything for myself with greed and entitlement. But it's saying, no, thank you and I trust you. I think as, as humans, we tend to be... An, you know Dudley in the first Harry Potter, you know, where he gets the gifts and he's just like, just ticked because they're two less than last year or whatever. And they're like, well, you know, some of them are bigger. And he's just like entitled little bratty kid. And it's just like, it is, it's disturbing. That whole scene at the beginning of the first Harry Potter is just painful because it's this little kid that's just like 
entitled. I want more. I want more. I want more. You're not giving me enough. No relationship with his parents, no love, no gratitude. And I think we're just like that in God's world. We're like, I want more. Give me more than you've already given me. Give me the next, why don't I have as much as that person? Or why, why did I lose something? Or why don't I have as much as I used to? Or why, why don't I have as much as I expected? And to actually say like part of coming before God in this system was a way of disciplining the people, kind of ordering the people around rhythms, not just of I need forgiveness and cleansing, but also rhythms of thank you. Thank you. Like the power of gratitude, the power, power of like a, a thankful heart where we recognize everything we has, have as a gift from God is a really beautiful, really actually soul-liberating like ritual to come before God regularly. Just thank you. Thank you. I'm so grateful for all of these things. And to come before him in that way is, is a beautiful, beautiful way to honor his provision, his kindness. Um, the third category are these sacrifices that were offered around certain festival days. And these were designed really kind of like for three things. One, to look back at what God had done in the past. So they do these kind of sacrifices to remember like the day of unleavened bread when God rescued them out of the land of Egypt. They'd sacrifice on this Passover lamb to remember the lamb that shed its blood to, to set them free. They would do these different kind of rituals to remember what God had done for them in the past, but also to fellowship with him in the present, to feast before him. To say part of being God's people is like, enjoying his presence. He wants to be with us. He wants to dwell among us. He doesn't just want to be a God that's out there like our sort of therapist we visit once in every, you know, whatever to help us out or kind of the person we call when like life falls apart, like some sort of insurance company, like my car broke down. I'm struggling financially. I get to go to God and ask him to help me out. You know, um, he is present with us and these rituals were ways to just enjoy him, to celebrate, to feast in the presence of God, saying God wants to have a real relationship with you. He wants you to enjoy his presence. And creating rhythms to enjoy his presence is a part of what these sacrifices were for. But it wasn't just looking back and it wasn't just kind of enjoying his presence in the moment. All of those festivals also anticipated a future work of God. The time when God would come and bring the fullness of his kingdom. He'd make all things new and all the things our hearts long for in our own story in the story of our family and friends, in the story of our cities and our nations, all the things our hearts as human beings long for. There's this promise that God's going to make everything new. Sin will be no more, brokenness no more, and the sacrifices were ways to look to that. So communion or the Lord's table really stands as a beautiful picture of that sort of ritual where we're looking back at what Christ has done for us through the shedding of his blood, his body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us to redeem us and rescue us. That happened in the past. As we eat the bread and we drink the cup with one another, we're remembering God is with us. We have communion with him and with one another. There's this feasting in his presence to know that we're loved and accepted before God and before one another through the work of Jesus as a gift. But also Paul says that we celebrate this as often as we do it. When we do it, we're proclaiming his death until he comes. When he comes again to make all things new. And so these, these sacrifices in the Old Testament all point us to Jesus, that Jesus' blood has forgiven us of our sin and cleansed us of our shame, that it's through Jesus that we come before God as children saying thank you to our good Father. And it's through Jesus that we remember what he's done, we enjoy the presence of God, and we anticipate the future. What I, what I want us to hone in on is this idea of forgiveness of guilt and cleansing of shame. It's kind of core of what atonement is in the Bible. 
Um, because I feel the reality, and I see this all the time. It's just interacting. It is really hard for us as human beings to be honest about the brokenness in our life. And, and that's, there's a reason for that. There's an antagonist in this world, and we call him the devil, but his voices are always two. He is the deceiver, and he is the accuser. These are the two major titles given to the devil. The devil, this Satan, is this accuser and a deceiver. And so the first move of the devil is to deceive you, to say there's a different way to life. Turn away from God. He's holding something back from you. There's a different way. Like go ahead and sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend. Go ahead and uh, kind of pursue this thing with drinking. Go ahead and pursue kind of self-righteous religion. Go ahead and kind of run in this direction trying to chase your career as if your career is going to kind of establish your sense of worth and value. Go ahead and kind of run in all of these directions. That will give you life. If you turn to Jesus with that stuff and if you turn from those things, God will hold something back from you. So he's a deceiver. But as soon as we do that, which we all do, then he like flips the hat to the accuser hat. Now you're never going to be worthy of love. If they knew what you've done, if they knew the insecurities in your heart, if they knew the, the shameful things that you've been involved in, if they knew the kind of the, the selfishness and the motives and the questions and the doubts, if they knew, if they knew, if God knew, they'd never accept you. And that's shame. It is just shame. There's a big difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is the kind of like consequence of our behaviors. So when we turn from God, we're really guilty, actually guilty. And it's never good to deny the reality of our guilt. It's always appropriate to be honest. Like, I did do that. I did turn from you. And there's real guilt. There's real guilt. Shame is this kind of emotional response to that guilt where because of it, we feel like, they would never love me. They would never accept me. I'm not worthy of love. I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not lovable enough. I'm not clean enough. I'm not uh, whatever it is. And it kind of pushes you away from actually being honest about the guilt. And it pushes you into a really dark place. And that reality of the guilt and it's kind of leading to shame is what just kind of tugs on all these areas of your life. Your motives for chasing your career your desire to be accepted by this man or this woman, your kind of like desire to have really close friendships and attachment issues, your, your issues as you walk through life and you feel just kind of this nagging sense of weight and responsibility and you don't want to fail and you don't want to fall short or whatever it is, right? This kind of these fears, and these insecurities, and these anxieties and these regrets over past decisions and this kind of apathy. As we feel those things, we don't want to face them and we don't want people to see them. And that's shame, and that's a response to the voice of an enemy. And the blood of Jesus comes into that space and brings not merely forgiveness of sins, the guilt, but also a cleansing of shame. Not merely does God through Jesus say, I have paid the price. The penalty is paid. Your guilt is forgiven. In the words of Martin Luther, this kind of old reform phrase, simul justus et peccador, which means at the same time, righteous and a sinner. At the same time, I stand before God, accepted and beloved and a sinner, and that allows me to be very honest. Man, I have messed up over and over and over again. You know, I've been talking to you all for the past few weeks about like, slow down, create space with Jesus. This past couple weeks, not, I did not, I, I just like been going. And I feel that. And I feel kind of like a hypocrite. I'm like, man, I keep preaching about this stuff and talking about it. And it's like, like I've really like taken things back on my shoulders and trying to do it alone and trying to do it without God. And that's real. And if I need to be somebody who never messes up, that pressure is like 
too much. And the beauty of God and the sacrifice of Christ is that God can say, man, that's real and that's rebellion and I forgive you and I love you. Have you ever shared with somebody, confronted them like, hey, this was really hurtful. And if they deny it and they kind of suppress it and they turn from it and they try to minimize it, well, you didn't. What if they just said, I'm so sorry for what I did to you. Will you forgive me? Just owning the guilt and asking for forgiveness is powerful and it's liberating. But to know that the sort of like the work of Christ is not merely giving us forgiveness before God, but it's also cleansing us that he delights in us as a good father. I was thinking this morning about the image of the prodigal son who's run away from the father, took the father's stuff, tried to build a life without the father. The life collapses. He feels like this intense regret, this guilt and this shame. And he's, gonna, he's got this plan. I'm going to go back to my father's house. It was better there. And I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell my father, like, I'm so sorry. I've sinned against you. I'm not worthy of being called your son. And I'm going to kind of like work as a servant in your house just to kind of like, I know that I'll be kind of a lesser servant. I know that I'll be kind of be like a marginal person in your household. I know that you'll be kind of disappointed in me, but can I just be around even if I'm second rate around? And so he's got this plan and he starts coming back to the father and the father sees him and the father runs to him. And the son begins his speech. He says, I've sinned against you and, and I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he doesn't get to the rest because the father interrupts him and the father embraces him and kisses him and celebrates and he takes a a bull and he says, slaughter the bull, make a sacrifice. My son is home. And he is accepted and he throws this this party that's beautiful saying, "My, my son was lost and he's found. My son and my daughter who have run away, they're back. And he's not merely saying, I guess I forgive you, but you're gonna be kind of like second rate. He's saying, I delight in you. I love you. I know all of the things, all of the deep things. And I sing over you with joy that he's not disappointed or frustrated. You feel this regret as a parent. I feel, I've felt this this week, just areas where I'm just like, man, I have just blown it. And some areas as a father. And just feel like what a painful thing to think about the ways where I've like, just like misrepresented God to my kids in ways that I think are damaging. It's like hard. And to like sit down with my kids and say, hey, as I go, Lord's like convicting me, like this is real. I think the way I've treated you in these circumstances is like a, a damaging and hurtful thing. And it's not what God's like. And I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I want to ask you to forgive me. And I want to ask Jesus to help me. And to go before Jesus and know that like as a father who's making mistakes as a father, that he still loves me and he still accepts me means I can be honest about that to my kids and I can stand here and be honest with you about that here. And I don't, it's like, yeah, maybe somebody would be like, whoa, I'm never going to go to a church with a father that's not perfect or a father that, you know, damages his kids. I'm like, well, you know, pray for pastor's kids, <laughs> you know, because just like read anything about pastor's kids. And it's like, geez, God have mercy on my kids have mercy on him. But to be honest, this is real, is a way towards healing and restoration. First John talks all about this. 
First John has this image. It's all about fellowship with God. And it's from John, John is the beloved apostle of Jesus. John is the one who Jesus, it was like Jesus' closest friend. It says in the Gospels, he was the apostle that Jesus loved. So you got Jesus' closest earthly friend that some decades after Jesus has gone, he's gone, he's ascended into heaven, John still talks like he has this incredible relationship, this fellowship with Jesus. It's like he's not standing there visibly, and he's like fellowshipping with him, and, and he says that this fellowship is something he longs for other Christians to experience. And the way to this in John chapter 1, it says, the way that we have fellowship with God is by walking in the light, because God is light, and there's no darkness in him. And you're like, oh, that means I have to be perfect. No. Walking in the light is not being perfect. Walking in the light is being honest about the sin in our life, and walking in the dark is saying we have no sin. Read the passage in 1 John 1. It says, if we, if we say we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's like, what does that look like? Well, it says it. If we confess our sins, meaning actually agree with God about the dark stuff in our heart and the fears and the anxieties and the brokenness and the pain, and we're honest about them, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that being honest about those things, and that's hard. And so we're not, you know, lining up on the front porch this morning with bulls and goats and doves and pigeons and all these things, you know. Like, if you want to, like, never mind. I'm not going <laughs> to, so ed- editing, <laughs> editing for a moment. Um, I'm just going to talk about squirrels for a minute because squirrels are driving me nuts. But um, <laughs> anyway, so I did that anyways. Um, but like, we're not like coming with sacrifices. We're saying, what does it mean to come to Jesus? Like, what does that mean? Well, it's, it's a relational reality. It really is creating space, relational space in your life to come to him, to talk to him. Not just like to believe some theological truths that if somebody asks you, you know stuff, but to relate to God with the stuff you know. Come to him. Jesus is like a great older brother that you could call when you're like, man, I, I really blew it. And I, and I failed, and I, and I need to talk to somebody. Jesus is like, talk to me. He's like a counselor and an advocate, like a, like a spouse who's present and wants to have like intimate relationship. He's the image of a good father who would pull you up on his lap and, and show you his love and remind you that he's there with you and the insecurities and the fears. But you have to create space in your life to, to relate to him and to talk to him about that. Not just like read the Bible and say prayers, but to be honest, to confess, which is just about being honest about what's real. God, here's what's real in my heart. I'm terrified to even see it. You know, every Sunday, and you, you all have your versions of this Every time I preach, I feel, I always feel nervous, always. And like, it's because I have like identity issues like you do. And I have to, I attach like unhealthy portions of my identity to like how I'm doing at things and do people accept me. And so I have to like every morning, every Sunday morning and like when I'm prepping throughout the week, just like sort through that and like the only way, and this is imperfect and like, I'm like, I'm not like, it's never all good or all bad. It's always muddy and messy, but just to know, like, I'm going to stand here and, like, I want it to be helpful and I want it to be clear and I want it to be biblical and I want people to like it and I want people to like me, you know, like something, I don't know. And it's like, when I can say, tonight, I'll lay my head on my pillow and because of the blood of Jesus, the God of the universe loves me. Even if I blow it, even if it's boring and it's unclear and it's unhelpful, even if I fail in this meeting or mess up with my kids or, or just fail in my relationship with my wife or whatever it is, like, 
knowing that you lay your head on your pillow and because of Jesus, the God of the universe loves you. That's awesome. And it really does lead to a freedom because you don't have to atone for yourself. You don't have to say, I'm good enough and aren't I, you know, like impressive enough or aren't I loving enough or aren't I helpful enough or aren't I whatever you need to be enough of. You don't have to. You can be really honest like, man, I I fall short of God's glory and he loves me. And now you're free not to go into relationships and settings, trying to get something out of your career for yourself and trying to get something out of your relationship in this sort of like kind of way that's like accumulating from other people things you want. But you're actually free because God loves you to serve and to love and to give. And it's a battle and it's a journey and it's hard and it's beautiful and it's freeing and it's liberating. And it all comes through the blood of Jesus. That because of the cross of Jesus, you are forgiven and you are loved. You're forgiven, and you're loved. And you can walk with your God. You can experience this kind of secure, faithful love, and it will liberate you from all of these things that just constantly are just attaching to your life and tugging you into these unhealthy spaces and responses and defenses and ways of kind of trying to make it through this world, kind of mitigating this sense of shame that we carry, and the blood is here to cleanse us, to forgive us, and to set us free. And so like the the path forward has to be being honest about these things before Jesus. And I say it's powerful then also to be honest with somebody else. And I get that that's complicated. I I get that. Um, But to go to somebody else that loves Jesus, whether it's a friend or a counselor, I always think like, you know, who do you feel safe being honest with about this? Because when we walk in the dark, those areas of shame and those areas of regret just kind of like really, really fester and pollute and kind of really obstruct our ability to be all that God has called us to be. But when you're honest about them, we'll say often that transformation happens when grace meets shame. When the grace of God meets that broken place and that dark place and that place we've been hiding, and all of a sudden we're like real about it and God's like, and I love you. I know that and I love you. It's like, oh, you still love? Oh, and you share with somebody else and you're like, me too, I get, I get that. I have those same kinds of regrets and they help you walk to Jesus, there's a freedom that happens. Maybe it's like the only person we feel really comfortable with is a counselor who's paid to not reject us and bound by law to not share that with anybody. You know, um, it's like, I feel safe with you. Um, There's a vulnerability in sharing that with a friend. There's a vulnerability in sharing it with a counselor. And like that vulnerability is an honesty that is the pathway to transformation. It's beautiful, it's liberating, it's powerful, and there's a risk. There's a real risk, and it's courageous to walk into that. But the gift of God's grace as it meets those places is liberating and freeing. And I think a lot of us in this room are being kind of like, kind of hindered in this life because we're constantly trying to kind of like defend against stuff that we don't even want to face in ourselves. And God has so much more. And that's all provided through the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we want to ask right now that you would work in our hearts. Just feel aware in this room that there are burdens again that that people are carrying and there is stuff that's been tucked away for a long time. And the voice of the enemy that says, keep it tucked away, keep it tucked away, keep it tucked away, hide that. It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Or people wouldn't love you. Just feel there's, there's stuff in our life, probably in all of our stories, that just hard for us to even like, even like think about. 
And so Holy Spirit, would you beautifully care? I just feel like I wish I could like sit with every person and and just want to say, this is what you do. You are the advocate. You are the helper. You are the counselor. Would you powerfully care right now? Care for your people. Tend to your flock. For those that are in the middle of, of maybe even a battle right now, like feel like conviction, like I want, I want to be free of this, but I'm afraid. God, would you silence the accuser's voice? Would you silence his voice in Jesus' name? silence that voice with your voice of love, with your voice of grace, with your voice of healing, where people's life is kind of like um, built on some image of themselves that if they were to be honest about, they feel like that would just crush. Would you, would you offer them a more free way? Would you kindly, gently, and powerfully liberate them from those soul-crushing, life-damaging defenses? And would you remind us of your incredible love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the beautiful demonstration of your incredible, faithful love. And so help us to know your love and sink it past our brains into the depth of our soul that we would know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of your incredible, unfathomable love for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.